This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Lama Somo. Born Linda Pritzker, Lama Somo was ordained during an investiture ceremony in Nepal in 2003 after a decade of studying under the tutelage of Gochen Tulku Sangak Rinpoche, world holder of the Namchak lineage of Tibet. She's the co-founder of the Namchak Foundation and organization dedicated to giving people tools for reducing suffering, increasing happiness, and generally waking up through online courses and retreats in various locations, including the Namchak Retreat Ranch in western Montana. She's the author of two books, The Princess Who Wept Pearls, The Feminine Journey and Fairy Tales, and a new book called Why Is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? a Westerner's introduction and guide to Tibetan Buddhist practice. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lama Somo and I spoke about her teacher, Gochen Tulku Sangyak Rinpoche, and the time he spent imprisoned by the Chinese, what he learned from the experience, and what we can all learn about karma, taking responsibility for our lives, and transforming resentment. We also talked about the science behind visualization practice and working with deity images as archetypes and mantra as archetypal sound. We talked about the scientific work of David Bohm and being wavicles, both waves and particles, and what Bohm's discoveries have in common with the view of Tibetan Buddhism. Finally, we talked about motivation on the spiritual path and in life and how clarifying our motivation can lead to happiness. Here's my conversation with Lama Somo. Lama Somo, I think for many listeners, it's unusual for them to meet someone who is an American-born woman and now a Lama. And to begin with, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a bit about becoming a Lama and what it means to be a Lama. Sure. So I'll start with becoming a Lama, what's involved with that. Um, It's actually quite an extensive training. I, uh, being one of the few who has done all this... I happen to be one of the first uh, American students to be lucky enough to study with Gochen Tuku Sangak Rinpoche, who is my teacher even today. And uh, so many years ago, I met him, um, and uh, he I became his sort of first American guinea pig to, you know, <laughs> try out all these Tibetan practices on. And I would finish one, and it would just... it. it benefited me so much that I wanted to do the next one and the next one. And I would do one retreat after another and just feel so much better and happier and better able to meet life's challenges uh, and, you know, painful moments and so on. Um, And just live with generally more joy uh, and sort of tuning into this sea of love that we're all bathing in, actually, uh, and ocean of awareness, that kind of thing. It's very hard for us to tune into. It certainly was for me. Uh, And so these practices were so extremely helpful that I just wanted to do the next one and the next one. And it's a graduated path, so um, I... um, The medicine was stronger and stronger as I went. Um, Now, I would keep saying to Rinpoche, you know... I don't feel like I've mastered this last stage. Are you sure I'm ready for the next one? 
And he was like, yes, yes, you can go to the next one. It's, you, you know, you don't have to have perfectly mastered it and just you're ready for the next one. So I thought, well, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's trained a whole lot of students before, so, and he knows my mind. And he watched over me very closely uh, in my retreats and uh, in between and so on and was training me, you know, very closely because there weren't a lot of students doing all of these at the time, like nobody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Uh, I was really lucky uh, to have that level of his focus on me, and he's an amazing, gifted teacher as well as practitioner and scholar. So um, the total training traditionally is three years, three months, and three days of retreat. So that means 24-7, basically, other than when you're eating or sleeping, you're doing these practices. So when you want to learn a new language, you, you want to do total immersion. If you want to change the pathways in your brain, whether it's learning a new language or learning a new way to be and to live life and to, you know, do yourself, it's really the same thing. And it also requires daily practice. So uh, even when I wasn't in uh, actual formal retreat, I still was doing daily practice. Um, you know, and it's just the same with learning a foreign language for the same reasons, really, about the neural path- pathways and neural plasticity and so on. So anyway, um, I did, uh, I, by now I've done more than uh, three years, three months and three days, but I did all of the levels as well of training that needed to be done. Uh, so I've done all the, that um, much retreat, and mostly it was solitary retreat, and it was according to the strict Tibetan traditional rules of retreat, with, as I said, Rinpoche watching closely over me to make sure I was especially doing the advanced practices uh, correctly, or, you know, it's kind of a don't try this at home thing (laughs) until you've had good training. Um, And so by the time I finished all of that, then he... Uh, as my kids like to say, he laminated me. And so that happened first in Nepal, and then he wanted to do it again uh, here in uh, in the States, in Montana. So that, uh, the first, the one in Nepal happened in 2005. Now, Lama Soma, I'm curious, for many Western people, the practices of Tibetan Buddhism seem quite foreign. You know, working yeah. with colorful deities, doing chants in another language. How was all of that for you? How did all of that become incorporated in your own experience? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked that because uh, I was really very lucky. I have always been fascinated by archetypes and discovered Jung when I was 15 and um, read a lot of Jung, actually had that as my emphasis when I uh, did my master's degree program um, in counseling psych. And um, so for me, I'm comfortable with um, the level, the archetypal level of things and working with archetypal image and sound and so on. And that's really what we're talking about. So when there's a ferocious deity and it's got, you know, long eye teeth and flaming hair and it's dark blue and it's um, got long nails and so on, um, and yet it's an enlightened being, um, but it's known as a wrathful deity. Um, so they've got a lot of uh, uh, ferocity, but that same deity often has a peaceful form, in which case they're beautiful and they're surrounded by flowers and you know they're a different color and the eye teeth are a normal size and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so all of these things, to me, weren't so foreign. I mean, it still was in a way, but at least I had that bridge, and that was really helpful for me. So I remember distinctly, at one point I was in meditation uh, retreat in Nepal, and I was doing uh, a practice with a deity, and I was saying a mantra, which, by the way, is foreign also for Tibetans, because it's Sanskrit, which is considered archetypal sound. Uh, so um, I'll get into that a little bit. But uh, anyway, so what what these things do is help us to tune into the channel of, let's say, uh, Green Tara, who is like this wonderful earth mother goddess sort of uh, deity, and she's green, and she has one foot outstretched as though she's ready to leap to the aid of us as her children as soon as we call on her. 
so that's an example of one archetype. And the great mother is an archetype that you find all over the world. Um, but the archetype itself is hard for us to tune into um, because it's kind of ineffable. ineffable. It's a principle of reality. So we use archetypal image, archetypal sound, um, anything to help ourselves to be able to tune into that channel. And so that's what I loved about deity practice is that uh, it was helping me to tune into this uh, more perfect principle of reality level. It gave me a way to do that because normally we're kind of stuck on this channel and we don't have the channel changer, right? And so to be able to use these methods to... Uh, go to the Green Tara channel or the Vajrasattva channel or the Guru Rinpoche channel, uh, whatever it might be, um, is a wonderful uh, set of tools to be able to have. And, of course, in Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, quite ancient, um, the tools are very highly developed and refined. So getting back to when I was in retreat and doing deity practice in Nepal, I remember at this one moment, it just struck me. I thought, my God, these techniques are so uh, highly refined and honed and effective. I'm just stunned. I mean, this is way beyond anything I've experienced as in my training as a psychologist. Um, I was just marveling. And then I thought, well, wait a second. When did Jung live? When did Freud live? Uh, or, you know, any of these. Um, you know, the fathers of modern psychology, compared with the Buddha, or even uh, Papa Sambhava, who brought Buddhism to Tibet and uh, really was the one who uh, took advantage of these methods uh, practicing with deities. So I thought, well, no wonder it's so much more developed and it's effective. And I, I also then later um, studied you're, you're, the work. You're saying of, that it's it's more developed because of its ancient roots, because it's an older tradition. They've been at it longer, you know, and millions of people have been practicing this, and these uh, enlightened masters have put this together, um, and then worked with uh, you know a large population of people, and so I think. We human beings, if we can stand on the shoulders of the ones before us and keep developing and enhancing methods, they can get better. You know, we can develop them. So they had a chance to do that for longer than we did. With, you know, again, we're talking about archetypes and affecting deep transformational change using archetypes. I'm curious, I'm sure you've come into contact with students who have this kind of response. I certainly have come into contact with many people who have this response, which is, you know, I'm an American. I speak English. Mm -hmm. This all feels like a different culture, a culture that's outside of my own background and upbringing. And it's just too big a bridge to cross. And it feels... I don't know, like like I'm taking something on that's not really mine. So I'm wondering when you have a student who has that kind of response, how you work with that? Well, there are a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, everybody's different. Uh, and even the Buddha uh, set forth different paths for different students because, um, you know, even at that time and place, not everybody was the same. So we just have different natural proclivities. You know, I happen to be able to learn Tibetan, but my gosh, I wouldn't expect anybody else to have to be able to do that just to take advantage of these tools, for example. Um, but also, um, I, don't, I don't believe that Tibetan Buddhism is for everyone. That said, if uh, the tools themselves are of benefit to somebody, then I'd like to be able to make those available to Westerners who speak English, which is why I wrote the book, uh, because I didn't want other people to have to go through, you know, going to Nepal, learning Tibetan, you know, sitting in years of retreat and all that kind of thing in order to be able to put this together. Um, I, I wrote the book with my own self, you know, like my younger self in mind who had wanted this, and it wasn't available when I was uh, learning, and I had to wait until I was in my mid-40s and stumble upon Rinpoche and, you know, 
follow this whole path. I wanted to provide that for Westerners who, you know, wanted to live in America and were fine with speaking English and still wanted to take advantage of these methods because they're great methods. And Rinpoche, when he was first teaching me, was saying, I'm not giving you a religion, which, by the way, I think is kind of a culturally based thing. He said, I'm giving you a set of tools. And so that's what I did. I took on those tools. Now, at one point, I remember having a bit of a crisis, uh, I don't know, uh, kind of a guilt crisis as a person having grown up Jewish. Um, I was sitting there doing my morning meditation, and I suddenly realized, I think I know more Tibetan words than Hebrew which it didn't take much, by the way. Um, but it was kind of a terrible moment when I was like, oh my gosh, what, what's happening here? Oy vey. And I thought, wait, right? <laughs> and then I thought, wait a second. You know, my uh, eyes are still going to be round. My hair is still going to be curly and frizzy. <laughs> I'm, you know, still going to have my cultural, you know, uh, background that I have, which I like, you know, I'm comfortable with it. I'm happy with being Jewish. Um, still like to go to Passover and eat too much and, you know, go, <laughs> go to the high holiday services when they're, you know, I, there's some really meaningful ones, uh, that I think are just great. But also I'm just culturally Jewish, uh, and that's mainly it. Um, and I, I like that and I'm culturally American. And and I like that, too. So I didn't feel like I had to give up any of that stuff in order to take advantage of these incredibly effective, highly developed tools. And so I get to be a really happy, satisfied American who's living a, a much more meaningful life than I would have otherwise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned Lama Somo archetypal sound in terms of the Sanskrit mantras. And also that the deity images themselves in Tibetan Buddhism are, in your work with them, archetypal. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about your understanding of working with archetypes and archetypal sound and how that changes us. Yeah. Uh, So after that moment that I described in Nepal, where I was sort of marveling at the effectiveness of these tools... uh, I I happen to be friends with uh, uh, Richie Davidson, who is um, a neuroscientist who works with the Dalai Lama, and he himself has meditated all of his adult life. Um, and he directed me to the work of Stephen Coslin, who wrote a book called The Case for Mental Imagery. And I was excited to read that book, but it, again, this is something I wouldn't ask other people to read, even though it's in English, <laughs> because it's... Um, it gets very sciencey and nerdy, but uh, basically, I was excited to see that um, the when we see something actually in front of us, or when we visualize something, uh, let's say it's the same thing. We're imagining, I don't know, uh, a, a beautiful woman, such as Green Tara, or we uh, just visualize it. It turns out that the same parts of the brain light up as we do it. And there are a lot of other effects that are the same. So that means, I mean, when you think about it, that means that we can set up the perfect experiences for ourselves to create a deep change in the brain, in the mind, uh, in our experience. So in other words, uh, every day when I sit on the cushion, I can go through this uh, experience that has been very carefully and deeply put together, uh, thoughtfully put together by these uh, realized masters and uh, honed over uh, you know these long ages of time uh, that happen to be very effective at uh, going deep into the brain, much deeper than the frontal lobes where speech is and concepts are and that kind of thing. Uh, and it coordinates different parts of the brain so that you begin to have this orchestration of you know many parts of the brain uh, to create um, deep change uh, and 
you know, we begin to work differently. And this has been proven out uh, in many laboratories where they found that the, the brain begins to do its dance. The various parts of the brain do the dances differently. And desirable parts of the brain actually get measurably larger in not all that long in some cases. That's very exciting to me as a you know, psychotherapist as well as a, just a human being and a llama. Thank you. That's helpful. Now, you mentioned Lama Somo, your teacher, Gochen Tulku Sangak Rinpoche, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about him. In reading your book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling?, I was impressed about what a remarkable person he is and quite a remarkable personal history. So I wonder if you can just share with our listeners maybe a few points about his history, because I think they'll be very interested. Yeah. Um, so it, just in meeting him, uh, I, I didn't know about his history before. And I just found that he was very simple, straightforward, and to the point. Uh, no frills. Wasn't interested in being charismatic or anything. <laughs> just, you know, he is just all about helping. It, you know, and sometimes it's as simple as, you know, helping somebody to, uh, you know, carry this thing over there. It, you know, it's just like whatever's in front of him. Or it can be as profound as sitting with somebody who's dying uh, and, and being incredibly... Uh, what is the word? Well, compassionate uh, and empathetic uh, with absolutely no uh, sentimentality or pity or anything like that, but just really present with them and holding them in it. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a beautiful thing. And then I remember he didn't know any English, and uh, he was staying with me at the time, and the neighbors were having a, a little get-together. And so I took him down there, and he I, I looked over. I thought, oh, the poor guy, he can't, you know, I should be translating. He was sitting on the floor with the kids playing, just fine. <laughs> no problem. So, you know, he's got this vast range, is what I'm saying. Anything from just this very ordinary, everyday stuff to uh, the fact that um, he is one of the premier Dzogchen teachers. Uh, and many Tibetan lamas know this. Uh, so, uh, for those who know about uh, Dingo Chensei Rinpoche, who was the head of the Nyingmapa lineage, my teacher served him for 14 years. Um, as he was building the Shechen Monastery in exile. And Rinpoche had a lot of responsibility, as you can imagine. Uh, So um, he learned Dzogchen from a master in prison, but then he also, that master was, you know, really one of the great hidden lamas of the 20th century. But then uh, Dingo Chensei Rinpoche was also one of the great Dzogchen masters, and so Rinpoche learned from him as well. And Dingo Chensei Rinpoche's grandson then, um, many years later after Dingo Chensei Rinpoche passed, asked my teacher, Tuku Sangak Rinpoche, to um, teach their teachers the system according to uh, his grandfather so that they could be sure to have it, you know, as pristinely as possible. Um, So, you know, there's some of his scholarly and deep practice and profound mastery uh, on display there, uh, you know, in contrast with sitting on the floor with the neighbor's kids. Um, But one thing that I was really struck by was the story of his time in prison. And that's why I talked about it uh, in the book, because he said that was really when he came to the Dharma and took it to heart in a much deeper way. Even though he grew up with it, he was already a reincarnated Lama. He knew that from when he was a tiny toddler and could barely speak. Um, But then as uh, a 13-year-old, he was thrown in prison by the Chinese, and he was put together with all the other greatest threats to society, which were the other uh, lamas. And so he was able to study with them, which was a good thing, because as you can imagine, 
if a 13-year-old resents having to do the dishes, can you imagine how resentful he felt of the Chinese? Mm-hmm. And he said his resentment burned in his heart like a hot poker. And since happiness and suffering happen on the inside, that you know we experience it inside of our minds and our hearts, um, he said that was his experience. And it didn't matter so much what was happening on the outside. He was in pain, terrible pain on the inside. And the most painful thing about it wasn't actually, uh, you know, technically speaking, what the Chinese were doing or the you know, uh, small amount of terrible food and so on and so forth, it was his resentment. And so uh, a couple of lamas took him under their wings and um, helped him to do practices, which he did avidly because he needed to. He was suffering. And he found that the more he practiced, the more that resentment uh, was melting away. And so he did it even more avidly. And he got to the point where really he was able to actually turn it around and see things very differently. For example, this one lama who, uh, again, was one of the hidden, great hidden lamas of the 20th century, he uh, asked him simple questions like, um, okay, so you resent the guards. Um, and you wish them ill. Um, But let me ask you something. How is it that you came to be here in this situation? I mean, is it, did they actually, are they actually responsible? How could this have happened if you hadn't planted the karmic seeds in some lifetime, who knows when? You know, so that's an interesting thing because it doesn't, it's not... Uh, we have to take it out of the Judeo-Christian sort of guilt-trippy thing and realize that in a previous life, he wasn't exactly him, you know? It was uh, the way that reincarnation is understood is sort of like a wave going up and down. And the the wave here is, you know, once it's gone up and down a few times and it's now over there, that's not the same water and the wave isn't the same shape. And yet we say it's the same wave. So reincarnation is a little bit, you know, kind of ineffable like that. We can, it's hard to say that, you know, I am me in this life and I also was me in that life. It's not that that clear. Uh, it's more subtle than that. But anyway, so in some lifetime, God knows when, um, he planted the karmic seeds that had come to ripen. And if that hadn't been the case... Uh, it wouldn't be possible for him to be in that situation. So if that's the case, then that sort of empowers a person. As soon as we take responsibility in a situation, we actually empower ourselves. Uh, and, and that's, by the way, a little plug for uh, forgiveness, which uh, we all need to be able to do more of. Um, so he then could take some more responsibility and say, okay, so here I am in this situation and uh, there are things that I can do so that I can feel better in the situation. So I'm just going to pay attention to that. But on top of that, he said, okay, let's take this karmic thing a little further. The guards are now planting the karmic seeds for them to experience something at least as bad as this in the future. And if you watch, if you really look at them, they're not even happy in the moment that they're doing this. And so they need your compassion more than you need the compassion. You're burning off karma. They're acquiring it, and they're not even happy while they do it. And so uh, Rinpoche really thought about that, and that made sense to him. And the other thing that was happening more and more, again, was that uh, as he was practicing these methods, he was feeling happier and happier uh, until he was actually, he said he, it was like he went from a hell realm to uh, some kind of a, uh, well, it's called Shinkam in Tibetan, so uh, Pure Land, uh, I think is the usual English translation. And um, so he was thinking, you know, if I stay here the rest of my life, I'm okay. I feel fine. And he marveled at the fact that actually his outer circumstances hadn't changed at all. All of the change had happened on the inside because that's where happiness and suffering do happen. 
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Lama Soma, I think a lot of Westerners have trouble with this idea of karma as, you know, I'm responsible for some terrible situation I happen to be in, like mm-hmm. the illness yeah. of a young child or something like that. Really, it's something that happened when they were a wave in a in a previous lifetime. I think it offends people and they're, you know, and yet I hear the power in what you're talking about in terms of us not blaming and taking full responsibility for our situation, whatever it is, at least to be responsible in it, not to create harm, but to create goodness wherever we find ourselves. But what would you say to that person who says, you know, I just this idea that something happened in a past life that I'm taking responsibility for now, I can't get behind that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to start from... The other end of things, the Judeo-Christian background, it particularly, I, I would have to say, uh, sort of the culturally Christian background, which we all have some of because this is a predominantly Christian society. Um, you know, there's the understanding of original sin, which I, I couldn't figure out. It didn't make any sense to me, and I, I was born into this culture. So I, you know, I may not be the right person to ask about any of this. But um, the other thing that never made sense to me was the idea that um, God knows what's best for us, and you know, God has a plan, and, and it's all for the best. Because when a child is sick and maybe dies, uh, how are we supposed to uh, buy into that? That, to me, doesn't make any sense. And yet, People are born into such widely different uh, circumstances that they couldn't be responsible for before that unless there was a whole lot of history before that. Now, what I can sign up for is the idea that um, consciousness doesn't end when the body dies. Uh, The work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I think, uh, points to that. There's another book written by a neurosurgeon who himself was um, brain dead for a week, uh, and he had never been even remotely religious uh, before that. Um, he wrote a book called Proof of Heaven, just from an account of his own experiences mm-hmm. while he was checked out for a week. So let's just start with the idea that consciousness isn't uh, something that ends when the brain dies. So if we if we say that, as soon as we say that, then we have to say, well, okay, so then is there only one time that we inhabit a body? Does that make sense? If this, if this uh, consciousness is eternal, or certainly, you know, <clears throat> probably very, very uh, long-lived. Um, so if... If that's the case, and we don't remember from one lifetime to the next. We know that for sure. Uh, I mean, at least most of us don't. Uh, Rinpoche remembered his past lives, um, but uh, most of us don't. But anyway, if we don't remember what we did, you know, there's another factor. Um, So, but if we've been kicking around the universe for, let's say, I don't know, when, how long would we say? A million years? A billion years? It's hard to say because... When would that consciousness stop? But let's say it's been, you know, incalculably long. That's given us time to incarnate in all manner of forms and do everything at least once, probably many, many times. So then I begin to take it all less personally. You know, it's like all of us have been, you know, sort of circulating and (laughs) recycling (laughs) consciousness uh, throughout a very long eternity. And um, we've had the chance to kind of be everything and do everything. So we've been wonderful and terrible and everything in between. So the Tibetans don't take it so personally, and I don't either, actually, uh, when some karma from who knows when 
bubbles up. And now this is what I have to live out um, because of, uh, here's how I think of karma. Um, It's like it leaves its traces on our consciousness when we do commit either a mental or physical act. Uh, And so that would be inescapable. You know, and even after we die, that that trace will continue. And it shapes, the, the habits of our mind shapes kind of how our inclinations are and so on. Therefore, what kind of body or circumstance will land in the next time? They say that uh, the consciousness is like, uh, in the bardo, is like a feather in a wind tunnel. And anybody who's fallen asleep and dreamed at night knows how much control we have over what we're going to dream. So the bardo state is a lot like that. And by the time we get through that and into the next life, we have no control. It's going to be whatever inclinations and habits of mind happen to be propelling us. Um, So, you know, we don't mean to land in an unfortunate lifetime or this, that, or the other circumstance or even a good circumstance. It's just kind of what happens by the time we get shot out the other end of the uh, wind tunnel. So is, is this helping to it, make you know, sense? It, it has helped me. I appreciate the perspective. It's a, a very big view that you're offering when you talk about how we've been in so many different kinds of lifetimes and different roles and uh, it opened my mind hearing you describe that. Now, I, I want to circle back because I was so moved, actually, in reading about Rinpoche's transformation in prison. And, you know, even just the title of your book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? You know, the ability for somebody to be in a terribly suffering situation, in the case of the Dalai Lama, with the people of Tibet being under Chinese rule, and yet here he is on the cover of your book, smiling, and your description yeah. of Rinpoche finding peace and happiness in prison. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, and particularly to people who are listening and feel, you know, part of me feels resentful of XYZ in my life. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. have as much money as my neighbor and I wish I did, or I have these terrible responsibilities that are a burden that I don't like, or whatever it might be. How might they work with their resentment? Yeah, so that that's the big one. And actually, uh, I'm going to have a whole uh, section in uh, book two, because this is... Uh, why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling is actually going to be a series of three books. So in book two, I want to really focus on the process of forgiveness. That's a very big subject. And I've certainly had to forgive people in my life, and I don't know anyone who hasn't. You know, as a psychotherapist, I've gotten a front row seat in listening to the stories of one person after another. And I, I remember just it, with each case thinking to myself, Oh, as I'm listening to this person, I'm thinking, that should never happen to anyone, you know, as they're describing their life. And yet we all have these painful situations we grew up with, painful situations and people uh, we're faced with today, any day. Uh, it seems to be part of um, human existence, and not even just human beings. If you really look at animals, you could say the same thing for animals. So, um, in, in any uh, intimate relationships, and, and it can also be work relationships and so on, there are going to be moments where you have to be able to forgive somebody because they've done something that hurts. Um, and, you know, it can be that they didn't mean to. Sometimes they did mean to. And the problem is, if you don't forgive them, then you're carrying around this burden of resentment. And of all the forms of stress uh, that you could pick, that is the most detrimental to your own longevity, to your own happiness, and uh, your own capacity for love. Because, uh, in a sense, your heart has to shrink smaller because you're excluding that person. It's like, yes, I love everybody, but not them. And uh, on the other hand, 
you shouldn't be asked to forget that it happened. Forgiveness is not the same as having amnesia. It's not about that. It's about simply finding a way uh, truly to forgive them and uh, once again live with an open heart because, you know, we want to live with an open heart. So we're doing it for ourselves first and foremost, not to do a favor to the person who hurt us. It's not really about that. It's a decision we make in ourselves. So the hardest part, I think, is uh, letting go of righteous wrath and um, making a decision, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to, I don't want to live like this and feel like this. This is toxic. I'm going to let go of this. And then there are uh, a few books, unfortunately not enough of them, on forgiveness as far as just simple stages uh, that you can move through. Uh, Dr. Fred Luskin did uh, studies at Stanford, very interesting studies with mothers of sons who were killed in Ireland during the conflict there, for example. And wow, you know, that's a tall order for them to be able to forgive. Uh, and yet they, the ones who signed up for the study found it, I mean, they personally reported that they found it incredibly helpful. And he does very methodically and realistically take you through steps so that if once you do decide you want to forgive and, and let go of this grudge that you're holding, um, you can move through and out the other side and be a loving person. And that's what we all want to be. It just feels better. I'm curious, Lama Somo, if you'd be willing to share a letting go of resentment or forgiveness from your own life and how that worked for Mm -hmm. you. Yeah, so I was in a retreat, a Dzogchen retreat, uh, in solitary retreat, and I'm telling you something. When you sit in the crucible of retreat and you turn up the heat with these practices and you're all alone doing these practices day in and day out, Anything you resent <laughs> is going to come to the surface, uh, along with anything else. I, you know, it's just there's no hiding from it, right? So um, I was sitting there, and there was a person who um, I uh, was close to and cared a lot for, who I I had been ignoring the fact that they had actually been kind of making war on me for um, several years. And I'd been sort of having my head in the sand about it because, yeah, you know, I didn't want to believe it. And, you know, you just can't hide in that, that situation, as I said. So up came this awareness, oh, my gosh, it's so clear to me. This person has been making war on me um, for several years, this person who I love and care about. And they say that the opposite of love isn't hate but indifference. So all of a sudden, I felt this burning resentment. I mean, I was furious. And I felt like this, almost like this wildfire was um, like raging through my whole nervous system. And my whole self was like on fire with resentment. I was just furious. Um, And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to feel this. This feels awful. I want to get rid of this as as quickly as possible. And I wasn't thinking in terms of, oh, I want to, you know, just forget this person is doing this. At that point, that wasn't what I was about. And it wasn't about pardoning them, you know, or condoning their behavior or anything like that. It was just, this is horrible, this feeling. I've got to get rid of this. And fortunately, I uh, was just at a point in my practice where, I mean, in that session, where I was doing Vajrasattva practice, which is a um, a practice using an archetype for cleansing ourselves of karma, illness, uh, ill will, ill feelings, anything. Um, so I thought, well... This seems like good medicine. So I I happen to apply that practice, um, but it's not the only one you can use. Uh, It's just, you know, I was sitting there doing that, so that's the one I used. Um, And I sat there, and it's a very powerful one, and I was feeling so strongly that it became much more powerful. I find that the more strongly I need a practice and I'm uh, experiencing something that, you know, I'm applying the practice as medicine for 
the more strongly transformational it is. So I was doing this with all my heart. You can believe it. Mm-hmm. And um, it uh, just completely shifted things. There was this almost like this whirlwind of, um, well, it's hard to describe, and I, I don't want to go through the whole visualization or anything, but I was using that visualization, and it was really helping the process uh, in a way that talk therapy with a therapist would not have been nearly as effective. This yeah. is a case of applying visualization and mantra so that I could affect deep, real change. And sure enough, by the end of that session, I was feeling utterly peaceful, and my heart was feeling loving. I was feeling love and compassion for this very person. And I thought, really? I mean, could it have happened that quickly? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try this on for size, because when I had imagined a conversation with them uh, at the beginning of this process, even though it sounded sort of politically correct, the words, it was like battery acid because I was really resentful. But by the end, when I imagined talking with them, I was just feeling love. It was amazing. And the other interesting thing is, the next time I talked with them, I thought, oh, let's see how I do the dance with them now, uh, since I've done that whole, you know, experience. And the thing was, they didn't even give me a chance to, um, you know, do myself differently because they were already acting toward me differently. Yeah. Which I thought was very, very interesting. I thought, wait, wait, from hello, it's different? I didn't get a chance to do myself. Wait a second. <laughs> what kind of a test is this? So that was really interesting. <laughs> now, Lama Soma, I thought one of the really interesting parts of your book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, were these sections that you called science tidbits. And you sprinkled yeah. throughout the book discoveries from contemporary science and how they relate to the journey of the Vajrayana, of Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm wondering if you could share a couple of those that are particularly meaningful to you, that really gave you new insight. Well, one that I really liked uh, is a little bit difficult to describe quickly, (laughs) Uh, but I really like it. Um, So in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a, uh, or really any of Buddhism, there's this understanding that the source of everything um, is uh, this level of uh, unity and uh, purity. Uh, it's known as originally pure um, and uh, all-knowing. You know, because if it's the place of unity, then what wouldn't it know? Because everything is, you know, joined together at the root there, and it's like an ocean. So it's this ocean of awareness, and it's pure compassion because it's one thing. So like in my, with my body, if I, you know, uh, I, I don't know, if I uh, bang my hand on something, my whole self hurts, right? Uh, so it, it's like that. So it's utter, complete, pure, natural compassion. So this ocean, by its very nature, makes waves. And um, each and every wave in the whole, in all the oceans in the world, are unique. There aren't two that that are the same, and yet they're not separate. That you know, it's one big ocean, and it's uh, constantly making all these waves that are constantly changing. So that's kind of the picture of reality. And you are a wave, and I am a wave. That's the sort of metaphor how it how it applies. So now. Um, I became fascinated with the work of David Bohm, who uh, was one of the great 20th century uh, physicists, and he was a protege of Einstein's and um, was uh, quite famous and accomplished and so on, one of the early uh, quantum physicists and so on. He uh, he described uh, sort of the world according to that level of zooming in. Um, And I found it fascinating. Uh, First of all, he said it's holographic by nature. 
Uh, and so, um, how can I say this simply? And he, I, I show diagrams in the book that he found helpful. Um, where really the universe is non-local, I guess is the simplest way to say it. And at the subatomic particle level, the edge of my skin is no different from just outside of the edge of my skin or the inside of my skin. Because we're now way smaller than uh, cellular structure, right? And so there's just, now we're already at this ocean level, right? It's just kind of one ocean. So then we make sense out of this ocean of particles, waves. We can't really say what they are at that level. And scientists have debated about that and done a lot of experiments about it for a long time. And they were busy about that when Bohm was alive and talking about this. Some some of them called them wavicles. So um, on that level... Uh, you know, it's all kind of the same. So how do we make sense of it? How do we, in a sense, create our world that makes sense to us? And we do it uh, holographically, and, and our brains actually work holographically as well. Very interesting studies done on um, frogs, uh, their brains, showing that they work holographically. Uh, other animals as well, but it particularly, you know, the complex human brain. So we uh, it, we really are weaving together our reality from this sea of quantum wavicles, if you will, and um, that's con- absolutely consonant with the understanding that the Buddha had. And these practices help us get to that level and be able to sort of see through the. Uh, overlay that we put uh, in front of our eyes, if you will, you know, our windshield that is organizing reality into these forms that we think are actually solid, when obviously on the quantum level, they're not at all solid. There's as much space between an electron and a uh, neutron as there is between a planet and the sun, proportionally, you know, according to the proportion of their size. Um, so that's a lot of space. So that's still at the particle level. But on the subatomic particle level, it's even more space. So really, you know, how do we turn that into, you know, chair that I sit on, floor that I walk on, my body, that kind of thing? We have a lot more responsibility for our reality than we can possibly understand. I, I don't even understand it, and I've been, you know, meditating a lot for years. But at least I've had little glimpses. Uh, and that's the precious gift of uh, these practices uh, and, you know, working at it a lot, you know, because we, we just have such strong habits of mind. It, it takes wearing away at it, kind of like water on a stone. Um, but, it's it, you know, as the song goes, nice work if you can get it. Because the more I do it, the happier I am. So, you know, the journey itself is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So the main section of your new book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling?, is actually on methods so we can see for ourselves. And we won't have time to cover much here in our conversation, but I do want to at least talk about this first method that you introduce, which has to do with working with our motivation and our motivation for being a human being and also for spiritual practice. So I I wonder if you can talk some about that and what your motivation is and what you see as quote-unquote right motivation. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So why am I sitting here doing this practice, that motivation? Yeah, and and how do we each work with our own motivation? How would Mm -hmm. you recommend that as a practice that we can engage with. Yeah, this is a wonderful, simple uh, sort of series of stupid questions <laughs> that we can ask ourselves, mostly just with the question, why? So uh, let's say we want to begin something that we care about a lot. Uh, you know, I was picking practice at that point, I think, uh, that you're talking about. But it could be any piece of work that we care about. Why am I doing this? 
so I'm going to just pick the example of practice so that, you know, I can get more specific with something. So uh, I'll, I'll go through this inquiry with a student in front of the class quite often uh, so that they can go home and do this little inquiry themselves. Uh, so I'll ask the student, you know, why are you uh, doing this practice today? You know, let's say this morning when you did practice, why did you do it? Well, you know, I was tired and everything, but I, you know, have insisted I'm going to try and do this every day, so I did it. I'm like, okay, so why did you um, make that decision to do that? Well, I feel that uh, these methods really could help me so that I'm uh, a better mother to my kids and better with people at work. Um, and honestly, I, I'm not always so happy. I, you know, I, I, there are all these things that I want that I can't get and all these things that I don't want that I get anyway. And um, I, somehow or another, I don't have a lot of control of that, try as I might. So I, I still want to be happy. So those are some of my reasons for sitting down doing this. I'm like, okay, so uh, you know, why do you want to be better for your uh, kids and your coworkers and so on? you know, the first part that they answered with. And they said, well, because I love my kids and I want them to thrive as much as possible. I really want them to have a good experience in their childhood. So I want to give that to them and it's really important to me. So I want to practice these tools so that I will do less of the knee-jerk reactions and more um, the kinds of responses I want to have with them, the loving responses from, you know, the way I actually feel about them, which is that I love them. And I actually want to, uh, you know, pass good feeling back and forth with my coworkers uh, at work. I said, okay, well, why uh, would you want to, you know, work better uh, with your coworkers, for example? It's totally understandable why you want to give a good... um, childhood to your children, but actually, we could also, you know, I could ask about that, too. So let's let's take for the uh, children. Well, um, then they'll grow up and do wonderful things in the world. Of course, they'll be happy, and I love to think that they would uh, grow up to, you know, live fulfilled lives doing wonderful things. And as far as work, well, I want to feel fulfilled in my life, and Fulfillment for me means um, helping the world somehow. So now they've come down to two uh, altruistic motivations that are behind what they're doing. And usually people by that time are feeling pretty strongly, actually, as we go through that little inquiry. So what started out as, well, I told myself I'd do it, so here I am, you know. We got from that to, I want a meaningful life for my kids and for myself and, you know, benefit to the world. Now, that makes sense if we circle back to this ocean and waves idea. Because if each of us is a unique wave on the ocean, then each of us um, has unique gifts to give to the world. And we care about the world because we're actually connected just as all the waves aren't really separate, separate, they're part of the ocean. So if that's the true state of things, um, then our definition of a meaningful, fulfilling life is going to be uh, as much as possible, as effectively as possible, um, helping others with our lives, making our lives count for something for the benefit of others. And so it it sounds like part of what you're suggesting to people is that if they really get clear on their true heart's motivation, that that in and of itself will be tremendously beneficial, just that clarity all the time, returning to that clarity. It will, because then if you're coming from your real, true core motivation, it's almost like now you're going to hit the target. Because uh, now you remembered what your real target is, and we just forget. We get distracted, and we forget. Um, so the more we come back to that, the more our practice, our 
outer life, our inner life, can all really hit the target. And that's going to feel a lot more satisfying than sort of stumbling around forgetting the target, Mm -hmm. which is easy to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's why we have to keep doing this. So this brings me back to Bohm and uh, one more thing that he said. Um, And I, I will just have to paraphrase it, but what I read was so interesting to me that he said, the extent to which we're at odds with how reality actually is constructed is the extent to which we're going to suffer. And the extent to which we are in line with it, our perception of how things are aligns with how things actually are, is the extent to which we're going to be happy, satisfied, and so on. So, uh, that, in a sense, that little exercise I was just talking about, this little inquiry, is helping us to do that. Because then we're getting back to, ah, I am this unique wave, and I am also this ocean. And so now things are in alignment. So I'm going to live much more in alignment, and that's going to feel better. These methods that I teach in the book and the other ones that I've studied over the years all help us to be in that kind of alignment. I just have two final questions for you, Lama Somo. The first one is that throughout the book, I felt the strong quality of your devotion of your devotion to your teacher and to the practices that you've learned and that you're now sharing with others. And I just wanted you to talk about that for a moment because I think that kind of devotion is actually not that common or people maybe don't feel comfortable coming forward with their devoted heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting word for me because um, I actually had a lot of negative associations with it. I just thought, you know, I'm not this true believer type. You know, I tend to be, I thought of myself as kind of a skeptic and uh, was raised with a lot of science and enjoyed science um, and don't, I... uh, I really have almost an allergy to blind faith. <laughs> uh, I really don't have much use for it. Um, so, I, and I'm somebody who asks a lot of questions, and uh, I've always asked Rinpoche a lot of questions. Uh, and I really need to understand something before I'm going to sign up for it. But when I've experienced something for myself, then it's, I hesitate to even use the word faith. It's simply knowing, and you can't unknow something. So this one um, lama was in prison, and the Chinese were doing one of their interrogations, and they were saying, um, you know, they were trying to get him to disavow his uh, belief in the understandings that he'd come through, come to through his own experience. And he said, you know, (laughs) if you're going to hit me if I say that I believe this, I'll tell you I don't believe it. But, you know, if you tell me to say I don't have a mother when I've experienced my mother and I know I have a mother, I'll tell you I don't have a mother, but I still know I do. That's not going to change. And the way I think of it is you can't unknow something. So for me, I have thoroughly investigated these intellectually, um, experientially, and um, lived with them a long time uh, to the point where um, it's something I just know from my own personal experience. So I can't ask somebody else to believe that uh, out of blind faith, because I wouldn't. (laughs) But for me, it's absolutely something I know. So everything that I say in the book uh, is based on things that I myself have experienced to the extent that I just know it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I'm extremely grateful to Rinpoche for having brought me the intellectual understandings as well as the practices by which I myself could sit on a front row seat, be my own scientist, if you will, and experience these things. Uh, so the investigative lens, instead of being outward, as in Western science, was turned inward. Um, but first you have to stabilize that lens, so you have to stabilize the mind, and those are the first practices you learn. Then you're able to uh, trust the perceptions more, uh, especially when they happen again and again and again over time. 
I just have one final question for you, which is this program is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what somebody's edge is. And what I mean by that is mm. kind of your own personal growth edge, if you will, at this point in your life. Ah, okay. Uh, that's easy. <laughs> you see, I wrote this book, and now I'm in the midst of a book tour, and that's a real edge for me, I've got to tell you, <laughs> because um, I've had this rich inner life, and uh, I've been comfortable as a teacher, um, but to really step out of that and uh, uh, give a lot of uh, public events and uh, talking to media and so on, uh, and being more visible. I'm used to just kind of sitting on my mountain in the middle of no place Montana, and you know nobody knows who I am or anything. You know, and I'm quite comfortable with that. Um, but I've really stepped out of my comfort zone. And I, I before I uh, went to on the first leg of the tour uh, to New York, I was sharing with you before. I um, thought oh, gosh, I haven't done a book tour. Oh, my goodness. I, you know, and I was nervous about it and everything. But then I got in front of people, and here are just a bunch of people. You know, and I'm a person. <laughs> and we all want to be happy, and no, none of us wants to suffer. I found these ways that have really helped me to, uh, you know, move things on the spectrum much more towards happiness and satisfaction and living skillfully. And I'm excited to share these things with them and give them a taste of it and a few moments of peace, joy, and living in their hearts uh, just in in that very moment as we're sitting together. And I feel uh, blessed and honored that I get to be able to sit with people and do that. So it was actually quite lovely. I've been speaking with Lama Somo. She's the author of a new book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? A Westerner's Introduction and Guide to Tibetan Buddhist practice. Well, thank you for uh, stepping out of your comfort zone and forward <laughs> to bring these teachings and the book forward. I think it's a great service. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>